Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Joe Ottinger. Joe is a management consultant, board member, author, and thought leader in the areas of entrepreneurial leadership, innovation, and strategy execution. After a 15-year technology career, Joe co-founded a global management consulting firm called Cotter International with Harvard Business School professor John Cotter. After Cotter International, Joe founded his own management consulting firm called iInnovate, which provides comprehensive strategic advisory services to CEOs and senior teams that are scaling, as well as CEO peer forum groups for CEOs of companies that are scaling. Joe is the author of books and articles on entrepreneurial leadership that have appeared in Forbes and CEO Magazine, among others. Joe cares deeply about transforming companies, communities, and lives through innovation. I Innovate, along with the University of Washington, has published the Best of the Northwest Innovation Ecosystem Guide for the last six years, providing insights for entrepreneurs, investors, professionals, service providers, and support organizations, as well as publishing the Greater Seattle Innovation Ecosystem Report Card, which takes a snapshot of the changes to and status of our innovation economy. Joe currently lives in Seattle with his wife and his three grown children. So good to see you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you, Shauna. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so fun. I'm excited for this one. Um, okay, I'm sure you've listened. You told me you've listened before, so you know I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. Um, okay, well, what, was the, what was the best concert that you've ever attended? Uh, no question, Bruce Springsteen at Cornell. Uh, you know, I think it's his shtick, but he died on stage and they took him out and then he played his his last number. It was fantastic. Wait, wait. When you say at Cornell, like literally at Cornell? Yeah, it was a cor- uh, a concert that he played at Cornell University. Oh, how um, cool is that? You know, my favorite uh, musician is Clarence Clemens. I I started playing the sax because of him. That's a different story. I didn't know you played the sax. Well, I I know I one song really well. You just be, you just became a little hotter. I'm like, look at Joe. <laughs> Nothing hotter than a dude who plays an instrument. That's awesome. Um, okay, what are three qualities that you most admire in an entrepreneur? Uh, uh, integrity is my number one in any leader. Um, that they do what they say they're going to do, and that they present in the world with integrity. Um, Second, you know, what I admire most is just perseverance. I mean, I admire people who just are able to get through the barriers and, and move forward. And I guess the, the third one is um, the orchestration of great people. I think that's, you know. Ability to attract great talent and then like get them to do yeah. what you need them to do. Which is yeah. more in your world than mine even. It is, but it's interesting because, you know, if you just read about like what CEOs should be doing with their time, a good chunk of it should be on recruiting. Yes. And I think the good entrepreneurs know that. Yeah. Um, 
that they need to be the ones. I mean, obviously in conjunction, hopefully with Fuel Talent or with some other partner in some way, but it's like taking that seriously are the ones who get it over the finish line Absolutely. much better. Yeah. Um, okay. I know that you've written so many books, but I'm curious what's the best business book uh, that you've read or the one that you kind of most frequently recommend to others? Uh, there, there is uh, Crossing the Chasm, but... Um, the same author wrote uh, a book called um, Living on the Fault Line. And Living on the Fault Line was really all about what's core and what's not core. And at the time I read it, I was CEO of a company and it, we were trying to figure out what to outsource and what we need to do ourselves. So that one's a good one. It's, it's kind of, you got to dust it off. It's, it's old, but it, it still holds true today. Okay, I'm writing these down. This is awesome. I've gotten so many killer book recommendations and every now and then I write them down and then it's on my like scribble path. Like, where is that book? And of course I probably wouldn't read it anyway, but it's good for me to get inspired. Yeah. Um, okay. So if you could have one superpower, what would it be? The ability to fly. I'd like to be able to go places really quickly and see yeah. things and, and drop in on different events going on. It's probably worth I have it. that. I have that one too. <laughs> so, East Coast or West Coast, Joe? Oh, that's a tough one. I, I would say mm -hmm. half and half. Um, I love the energy of the East Coast, and still, you know, lived half my life on the East Coast, half on the West. Um, and I like the balance and the um, innovation on the West Coast. Yeah. I feel the exact same way. Yeah. Um, okay. So if you had an extra hour in the day, how would you spend it? I probably writing. Oh, nice. Yeah. I knew you I mean, weren't going to say golf that. out of it because <laughs> I, I got hooked on golf. Not, not too long ago, like five years, I took it up and, uh, and anybody who's taken up golf later in life, you know, you can get hooked on it. Okay, so tell me everything. Tell me, I know you're from the East Coast. Where exactly are you from? And tell me a little bit more about your childhood. So I grew up in New York uh, in a place called Pleasantville. It's in Westchester. It's probably an hour north of New York City. It's literally Pleasantville. Honestly. I've been there. <laughs> I know, it's like utopia there. It's uh, where Reader's Digest is. Um, we grew up uh, in a you know, political family. My dad was a US congressman. And when he won Congress for the first time, he actually, my dad, you know, you don't try to compete with his career. Um, he helped start the Peace Corps with Sergeant Shriver. I think he was the oh my first gosh. staff member. He became uh, um, a U.S. congressman for 20 years. He ran for Senate. Um, Robert Redford did his research on my dad's campaign for the candidate. Um, wow. Yeah, so, you know, that... Anyway, when we got into, he got into politics, we moved to D.C. And I really lived uh, in D.C. in a political household. But back then, it wasn't political like it is today. And it's tougher today. It's much tougher. So how did that shape you as far as the way that you see the world? I'm sure the conversations at the dinner table were yeah. enlightening. That, that, that it probably is what shaped me because... Um, kind of politics at its greatest core is how do you help the, the country? How do you help the world? How do you do things that um, will you know, benefit humanity? So those were our talks around the dinner table. We 
we had, uh, you know, I could name drop here. I'm not a name dropper, so I won't. But the people my dad was dealing with, the uh, policy issues, the environment and energy was was his number one. Uh, oh, interesting. And so I, you know, I went to Sidwell Friends School, which is where the uh, a lot of politicos went, including the Obama kids. Um, and you know, what shaped me is my desire to do good in the world. Yeah. But my interest was in business. Yeah. Did you ever consider politics? I think if I had stayed in New York, where the name was well known, I yeah. might have. Um, but I don't like politics in any way, in business, politics, in, you know, it's pure form. I, I like building things. So yeah. I, I really um, was interested in business and partly like my grandfather started a, a company called U.S. Plywood. Um, and he died before I was born, but it, it, it was a huge uh, endeavor and was the largest plywood company in the U.S. Uh, oh my goodness. Bought by Champion Paper and Actually, the small world connection is there were paper mills out in the Seattle area, in the Washington state. When I came out here, I had three people call me. Um, all three had worked for my father, uh, my grandfather. Actually, all three fathers had worked for my grandfather to be more. Oh, my goodness. And so they reached out to me. I, I, I learned more about my grandfather from them than I did in any other way. From him, I'm sure. Well, how cool to have that inspiration of generations of, you know, driven, um, interested, successful people around you. Yeah, um, really something. Were you, I'm assuming a good student because you went to Cornell and then of course HBS. Were you into school or like what, what made you? I would um, say I. What were you, what were you fueled by, I guess, at that time? Uh, I, I didn't love school, but I worked hard. You know, it was just in, in the family. What I did love is business school because, you know, rote memory, that was just not my thing, not that interesting, but, you know, put me into a situation where there's a problem to be solved. Like a case study. A case study. And Harvard Business School, it really prepares you well for today. Like, yeah. And today, you know, I, I think the entrepreneurs today have the skill, the problem solving skills, the critical thinking skills is more important than just about anything else, as well as that you kind can, of yeah. EQ. Yeah. Did you feel, I mean, what's your opinion about an MBA? Did you feel that that was a necessity or was that just like the natural path from a like family perspective? Like, Hey, we got to get the pedigree or we got to continue on with education. I think it's changed. So when I was going to school and in, you know, my generation, it was very much, you know, a stamp of approval. You needed to do it. Um, and for me, not having a business background really um, when I left uh, Cornell, I went to IBM because they had the best training program in mm -hmm. tech, and I just had this inkling I'd be interested in tech. But what I learned is I just don't resonate with large companies. Um, well, yeah, you had. I was actually going to ask. That's one of the questions I had uh, prepared because I'm like, you've worked. I know you're a builder, and I've met you. Kind of, I mean, I've known you for a long time, but we've gotten to know each other during this kind of this chapter, but early careers, like a lot of large companies. Yeah, actually just just really IBM and even McCaw Cellular was 
you know, just growing. It was in its, it was the rapid growth phase of yeah. Cross Cellular, which became AT&T Wireless. And so. Well, was AVT, I know you worked at, you were president of, you know, publicly traded company. So that that was, wasn't a big company? That, you know, it, it was, I'd say a small public company. It was a kind of a $250 million in revenue company. Um, yeah. It grew uh, at the end of 99 to be a billion dollar in valuation oh company. And back then that was really worth something. Wow. Um, and, and then, you know, kind of after the crash. So seeing market cycles uh, is interesting. And after the crash, it was back down to about 250 million. Yeah. Was the IBM thing something that happened because you got recruited out of Cornell? Yeah. Like, how did you even, how did that even you get I got recruited I out of Cornell. Um, I knew I needed to get training. I wasn't trained uh, in tech, and they had a phenomenal tech training course and a phenomenal mm-hmm. um, uh, sales and marketing uh, uh, kind of on-the-job training uh, course. And, uh, and it was the premier job you could get outside of, you know, I was just going for the best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also the recognizable. I mean, as a recruiter, I'm like, get that recognizable name. You got Cornell. You got IBM. Yep. You know, those are that's a great foundation for a resume to begin with for a 22 year old. Right. And so then you went back to HBS in between there. And and then I went straight to HBS. And then right after HBS, kind of because I wasn't, you know, feeling like I was making an impact, and my entrepreneurial genes kind of. Um, stood up. I, I started a company uh, called AMC, American Management Company, with two business school friends and a professor. And we raised money very quickly, grew it, sold it after five years to a public company. And that's when I met my wife, Leanne, who you know, and yeah. uh, we moved out to Seattle. Was that kind of a part of the deal? <laughs> People, I mean, I met my husband in New York and everyone's like, oh, good luck. And New Yorkers never leave. And that was never part of the deal. I wasn't sure I was going to come back. But, you know, we've got, a, I've got my New Yorker husband out here too. Well, like a lot of people I know who've moved to Seattle, we came out in May for two weeks. It was summer, sunny weather, like every day. Yeah. Uh, Leanne's father was selling hard. Um, all the benefits and great, great things about. Well, and her family is so incredible. I couldn't turn that family down in Seattle. Yeah, yeah exactly. But the first winter we were here, we thought about moving back to Boston. Um, and uh, that's the winter where the floating bridge sank. You know. Oh, you've been here a while. I remember that. Filled with water and sank and they built the new bridge. So, jeez. Um, oh, so it was... Uh, it, it was yeah. it was a, a hard weather year. Uh, yeah, but fun. How do you go about making some of these choices? You know, whether it's do I move to Seattle or do I take this job? Do I go back to get my MBA? Are you a person who um, kind of makes pros and cons lists? Do you just go with your gut? Um, do you get a lot of info from other people? Uh, I I would say I've had chapters. I'm I I kind of go, I'm, I'm uh, what would be the greatest uh, sports analogy? You know, I sprint for a while and then I slow down, I think about it and then I sprint again, right? So, and so I have chapters in my life, right? So this, you know, the, uh, the sprint to, um, 
you know, the sprint in terms of just my education, the sprint in terms of learning how to be an entrepreneur, you know, the sprint to um, kind of grow a company. And, you know, so it's been sprints. And then I step back. I usually write when I step back because I'm trying to get clear on something and it helps, helps me get clear. I'm a puzzle doer. So I'm trying to um, in a framework guy. So I'm trying to figure out something that I think others were, are also trying to figure out. Yeah. If I could make it clear, it might help some others. So yeah, but I'm driven by doing well and doing good. So, so that's kind of the common theme through everything. And I'm always asking the question, am I going to be able to scale that up in my next chapter? Yeah, interesting. And so all of these different experiences have led you, I mean, we haven't even gotten into your, your consulting business and, and I innovate and all these other things that you've done. But um, to this point, I mean, obviously getting an IBM and I want to hear all about Macaw. Um, what kind of lessons were you taking away as far as the kind of leader you wanted to be or, or who inspired you along, along that path? To me, you know, the, the progressive leader, I wanted to be the progressive leader and now I want to advise and help progressive leaders scale up their companies. Um, progressive, I mean, they're thinking holistically about uh, the value they bring to their customers, the value they bring to their employees, the value they bring to the community. And they are um, thinking on multiple levels all the time. And that's what I try to do. That's what I try to um, help others do. And the whole idea, and this goes back to my family, is how do you scale up impact in this multidimensional way? And the best way to do that, from my perspective, is business. It's not, not politics. It's not nonprofits. It's business. Yeah. Um, well, and the idea that you've said of like, you can do well and be successful while also doing good. Not only um, that, it's, it's synergistic. I mean, you're just starting to see this with ESG, environmental social governance. Um, why are the investment firms jumping in? It's not out of doing good. They're jumping in because when they do their financial screens and then they do their ESG screens, those companies are doing better. Yeah, financially, there, there's an actual ROI. There's an yeah. ROI, and I've always believed that. If you do it well, I believe you get a better ROI. Yeah, totally. And so um, having led a public, publicly traded company, how does that differ for you, that pressure, that visibility from you know working in a, public, a private company? Uh, you know, the reason I stepped out of my first tech career was because in a public company, I couldn't do, there was no interest in doing good. It was bottom line oriented. There was no, at that time, understanding of uh, this, what I'm calling progressive leadership. And so I stepped out. That's when I wrote the book Beyond Success, which really was about how leaders, and, and that was really interesting because I made a, a list of 30 uh, of the top leaders that were able to do well and do good at a massive scale, like uh, Les Wexner, Sandy Wild, oh, yeah. you know, um, some of the top uh, tech talent. Well, Dave, Mark Benioff has done that really well. Yes, Mark Benioff has done it extremely <laughs> well. And, and I tried to get the lessons learned in, in terms of kind of how you do it in business, um, how you do it with your wealth, how you do it in philanthropy, um, 
and you know just just really uh, really interesting. The fourth impact area was actually family. I was I started this with the support of some Harvard Business School professors because I couldn't get access to the people I wanted to talk to on my own. I went back, they helped me get access, and I, I do the first couple of interviews, and they I can't remember, I think it was Les Wexner who said, you're not asking me the most important question. And I said, what's that? How do you make impact in your family? Mm. And, I, and, the, and I'm finding just with even entrepreneurs how to balance the focus and intensity needed to succeed in business with you know, raising a family is very, very difficult equation. Just, I'm hoping that through living a certain way and through, you know, modeling certain behaviors that they're picking up on it. But I do think it's important to have intention and around kind of the messaging that you're sending to your kids, 100%. Okay, so tell me all about landing in Seattle and like then, then what? Like what did you do here and how did it feel different as far as um, being able to make an impact in your career and in the community? So... Uh, interesting story on the way out. So I met my wife in Boston. Um, we went out and visited Seattle. We got married and we took uh, a honeymoon where we were um, wanted to go to China and then a, a couple of other countries and then come, come back and now we're going to live in Seattle. We didn't know exactly what we were going to do. Originally, we thought we'd start a merchant bank because the banking sophistication back then, at least merchant banking, wasn't um, wasn't very sophisticated. Yeah. And you wait, hold on, go back. Did you meet her at HBS? I met her in a, on a blind date oh. from an HBS uh, uh, student uh, who was in my section. Nice. That's another. That, was that your first and only... Uh, no, I had, you know, I, I'm batting 500. The first one was a disaster. Uh, <laughs> so the second one was much better and lasted a long nice. time. Nice. Okay, sorry. So, okay, so, so this story is, is amazing. So we, we uh, uh, start, you know, we go through Seattle, we go to Japan, we go from Japan to Hong Kong. It's 1989. There's a lot going on in China, including Tiananmen Square. We get off in Beijing, we go to Tiananmen Square. We're talking with the kids in the tents. There's the makeshift staff, Statue of Liberty. Uh, we go back to our hotel that night. We get a call from Leanne's brother, Jeff, um, at about three in the morning. And I say, Jeff, hey, you know what time it is? He goes, yes. I go, well, what's, what's the rush? Or what's the, what's the uh, the urgency. Yeah, urgency in this. And he goes, uh, well, look out your window. We were two, two blocks from Tiananmen Square. The tanks rolled in that night. Um, my vision is of uh, bodies being carried on rickshaws, uh, burning cars outside of our window. And in the middle of all of that is a guy doing Tai Chi. Oh, like nothing is happening. I mean, amazing. There's a whole other story, but... It took us a long time to actually get out um, of China. And then we ended up in, in the UK. And in the UK, our, you know, our mind is open. We've been relaxed. We know we're, it's a new chapter. We're going to Seattle. And we're walking along. And my wife um, is just drawn to this 
store called The Body Shop. Mm. The Body Shop's a skin and hair care products company. It started by an amazing social entrepreneur, uh, more in the Ben and Jerry style, um, uh, named Anita Roddick. One of the greatest leaders I've, I've met, the, the company grew to a billion dollars, went public, got bought by Unilever, but it was franchise oriented. So she goes into the store and, and she wants to buy everything. I'm looking at how busy the store is. We go to seven stores while we're in London. We uh, film all the stores. And then we decide, well, maybe as a side business or Leanne's business, because Leanne was in private equity and she's, um, you know, she she's now on you know public company boards and private companies. She's a she's a baller in and of itself, yeah, which is a whole other amazing. conversation. Yeah. yeah, she really is. So, but at this time, we were thinking of having kids, and and uh, we thought a franchise could be great. And so we went to inquire uh, in D.C. from a friend of our family's, who's a franchise lawyer, and he goes, "You know, you came to the right person. I'm franchising the body shop." in the US, it was just chance. And so we got the rights to the body shop in Washington state. And um, we got to learn how to do well, integrate doing well and doing good in a business in, with the greatest teacher you could possibly have. And we grew a successful business. We then sold it back to the body shop. And that was kind of Chapter one of doing well and doing good. In and what do you mean when you say doing well and doing good through the body shop? What's the specific example of that? So, so <laughs> we made a, a significant amount of money every year at the body shop. So that was uh, the doing well part. In doing good, we did a couple of things. One is, um, and this was, this was franchise-wide, this was worldwide. Um, we would schedule people in the store and then we would schedule, I say we, it's, you know, Leanne and, and, and the uh, management of our company uh, into, um, you know, a nonprofit and each store would pick a nonprofit. So, okay, that was one thing. Second, the body shop did all of these, um, what they call trade night aid programs. And so because they needed natural ingredients and, they, um, we, you know, Anita would go to third world countries. She would um, teach people how to harvest what the body shop needed, create a sustainable business in a village, and we would get, you know, whatever it was, right? Whatever the specialty ingredient was. So it was just in, in that's impression. incredible. Where's Anita? Where's Anita now? So she passed away. I think uh, oh. uh, it, the company was bought by Unilever. She um, she just had a, a massive heart attack and oh, no. unplanned and 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 passed away. And then the body shop has gotten watered down. And I think leadership and culture setting, you know, something to be learned that you know, yeah. it's hard to pass it on, and it's hard yeah. to pass it on once you're acquired for sure. I love this body shop story, but I, I don't understand why you sold it back. Like, it sounds like it's a money machine and, and a feel-good business all at one. Okay, at so um, it's a side trip, but um, body shop uh, was needed to open more and more stores in the U.S. quicker than was reasonable given the financial structure for franchisees. Mm. So in the secondary malls, for instance, um, uh, body shop franchisees couldn't make money. 
you know, right. there's, there's a lot of fixed costs cost. and over that yeah. fixed cost, you make money. Yeah. We were in Bell Square and we were in South Center, North Gate, you know, downtown Pacific, uh, Pacific place. place. Yeah. And they were all doing well. So we were doing well, but then they wanted to open other stores. And so we saw what was coming was a disaster because the company stores were discounting. That wasn't mm. good for franchisees either. So we, um, you know, we went and actually Leanne and I presented to the board, the public company board of the body shop, two options. One was kind of get more margin, um, you know, give more margin to the body shop on royalties if you're doing really well and uh, give less royalties to the body shop if you're not doing well, essentially. And the option number two was um, just buy back all the body shop, make them all company owned, which is what they ended yeah. up doing. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And so when did you decide to do um, Cotter Management Consulting? Like I love, I loved learning a little bit more about this experience. Um, but super curious because you're kind of an operator. And I always think of management consulting as being an outsider. Like how how do you balance those two things as far as getting inspiration okay, and so, feeling like so successful? In you know, in, in writing the book Beyond Success, I was connected with uh, John Cotter. And John Cotter is one of these iconic professors um, on how to lead change. He's written over 20 books uh, on the topic. Um, and he really wanted to make an impact more than just research. Which, so he's a Harvard Business School professor. Um, and he, he was looking to find a way to, and, and this was our mission, millions leading and billions benefiting. So already you have a leader that cares or progressive leader. Yeah. Aligned values. Yeah, aligned yeah. values, the whole thing. However, he's, he's never built a business. Just because he knows everything about leading change in businesses globally around the world, um, he didn't know how to build a business. So there were four of us that partnered with John to start this consulting firm and it was really about building a business right it, it was entrepreneurial was a, yeah who were you targeting like who, what kind of customers did you work with and what problems were you trying to solve for them so whereas my focus for you know the last 10 years has been scaling up companies this was working with global companies at the sea level um and you know my job was to help bring in new clients and then service the C-level as part of our process. So we would go into companies like uh, some some of the uh, listeners might know NetApp. Uh, NetApp is a, a data storage company. Um, we were with them as they grew to be a Fortune 500 company. Um, and they were shifting their whole model from direct sales to um, partner sales. And they were having a hard time doing it. So we used the Cotter process, eight-step process for change, to help them actually make that switch. And just as you know, in big companies, the, the challenges are different and the same. No matter where you are, whatever got you there, whatever the business model that got you to where you are, um, isn't necessarily what's going to get you to the next stage. Not the same people, not the same processes, you know, um, 
you can be a, a, a you know a lot more fleet of foot. And the longer you've been around, the more you put in execution processes, you optimize for that. You become mm -hmm. really good at getting you know predictable results. You become really bad at innovating. And so uh, what this did is it started the process of creating an innovative culture and innovation um, process within a company to help them rapidly get to their strategic results. Hmm. And it was really fascinating. I didn't know whether it would work, but it worked. It worked every time. Well, it sounds like your philosophy was well adopted, um, you know, both within your partnership, but also within the companies that you were serving. Did you um, enjoy kind of the outside? I mean, you've kind of taken this outside role since like versus going in and being a, in a live operator of a, a business that you're trying to with like a product. This is more services. Um, did you like that part or, or what do you, I love what do you it. feel is like the, the pros and cons, I guess? The pros and cons. So the, the con is you're not in the seat and you're not, you know, in control of right. the decisions. The big pro for me, given the way, you know, I think is I can take, you know, I can work with lots of different uh, companies, C-level uh, companies scaling up which is now I, you know, getting to I innovate, scaling up their companies, I can learn and understand what they're doing that works. And then I can bring that uh, into a model to then be able to help others even, even better. And I love that. So it, yeah. it led well, to creativity, it led to writing another book called, it's about the innovation journey. It's, it's um, called I Innovate. It's why the, the company's named I Innovate. Yeah, I love reading I Innovate. I read that a few years ago. It's really, really good. And and um, so did you have to kind of exit I exit uh, Cotter in order to launch I Innovate or was there a transition there? Um, I exited Cotter. Uh, again, working with large companies is so different than working with entrepreneurial leaders. There's a lot more politics and things that yeah. make it difficult. Uh, yeah. And, but... Um, you know, my energy comes from these, these progressive entrepreneurial leaders, these leaders that are trying yeah. to really have this multi view of the world and of their yeah. stakeholders and really grow great companies. So today, you know, I'm working with, you know, probably uh, me and, and others in my company, uh, you know, probably about 20 companies of which two are unicorns, um, um, another, oh, I would say 10 have monetized um, and have gone around to start their next one. And How cool is that? That's gotta be so satisfying. It's so great because, you know, they've got the bug the same way I do. They, they, yeah. they did one thing, they grew it, and now they're gonna go and do it again. And uh, so, it's really and what, what's the exact um, kind of value that you're bringing to them? Are you, and, and is there a board seat involved or is it I advisory? I don't like taking a board seat only because I don't love governance. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm a strategic advisor. Um, I bring a methodologies, um, it kind of a, 
you know, how do you build a business operating system and how do you lead a uh, growth company? Those are the two things that I, I bring to it. And mm -hmm. then I bring this whole wealth of um, uh, an ecosystem of advisors and supporters and, you know, which led to writing this report that just came out for the sixth time with the University of Washington. What's the business model? And um, if there's someone who's listening, who's like, oh, I have a company and I could use this. Like I'm listening. I'm like, we could use this. Um, what's the target like perfect client for you or partner? Uh, you know, it's a company that's um, aspirational. So they're, they can be five or $10 million in revenue, but they want to be a hundred million dollar company, right? They want to grow significantly. So the aspiration is really important because then you're going to try to do things um, and you need capabilities and you need financing to go do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that's kind of middle market target. And then hopefully uh, we stay with the company for multiple years as they grow. Um, and um, the unicorn companies, I typically been with them two or three years before they got to that point. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what's the business model? They pay you a, a They pay a me a, a retainer and sometimes I get equity. equity. Yeah. And then, you know, I have with a mastermind group. So one of the things that I found really valuable, I've been in YPO and it's a, a CEO network. It's where you have peers and, you know, you can sit down and you absolute confidentiality, talk about the current most important issues you have on your plate. And I don't think there's anything better than that. So I started a mastermind group three years ago. Um, uh, most of the people are still the same. Um, Do you have one group or more than one group? We're just starting a second group. Um, and so, yeah, that would be a great, it, it's the greatest value. You could talk to anybody in the current yeah. group. I have, and they all get so much value. Um, yeah. If you're coming in to meet with a company and it's day one um, and they potentially are going to partner with you, what types of things are you trying to get out of that first meeting? Is it around culture? Is it around um, scaling, um, hiring, P&L stuff? Uh, what we're uh, trying to get out is um, where you are in the maturity of your business, your business operations, your leadership, um, and your ability to scale. We're asking questions about financial value, how that's created, so we can understand how you're thinking about it. And then we're helping work with you to build a roadmap. If you're at 20 million and you want in the next five years to get to 100, we're looking at the drivers and then trying to then we say roadmap first, um, instruments. So we work um, on OKRs and KPIs and really getting the right measures so that you're getting the right activities and right outcomes. And then all the way down to execution and processes. So what we're doing is mostly with the senior team and, and probably the next level down. And what about meeting with the team to see if there's any gaps or any conflicts around um, personalities or um, just stylistically, like this person's not a culture fit. And, and then what do you do? Do you partner with other people to try to get a coach or do you, do you take a role there too? 
we we have uh, one person who is a phenomenal executive coach, and then we just partner with out, uh, outside people. And it is, so there's kind of three things. We're looking at strategy execution. So we're looking at the financials. We're looking at the organization. We're looking at leadership. So that gets into our, we'll assess leadership. We'll assess, um, you know, we do this, you know, organization of the future, which we believe should be done as a, a matter of course every year. So okay, well, well, who do you need for the next two to three years, mm. right? And where and who do you have today? Interesting. And, what and, cool work. That yeah. must be so... Um, so it's very holistic is what I would say. Yeah, love it. So the book, I Innovate, um, what was your process for writing it and, and the goal of it? Um, that is kind of an allegorical uh, tale about... And, and Cotter had written... Um, our iceberg is melting. And so it was very effective. Who moved my cheese was very effective. I was really- I loved who moved my cheese. Yeah. I was trying to really um, help people understand the entrepreneur's journey from idea to, you know, starting a company to finding the right people to scaling the company. And then what happens when you get bigger and how that intersects with, um, advisors and a community, uh, an ecosystem basically that will help you along the way. And um, whether it's uh, um, uh, incubator or accelerator, or it's uh, uh, a VC firm, or it's, you know, a, a great lawyer or, you know, um, uh, you know, a service provider or something like that, just helping, um, people along the way and how that intersection between an entrepreneurial leader and the ecosystem works, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was often asked by CEOs for, hey, do you know, can you recommend a top IP lawyer? Can you recommend someone who can help us with compensation analysis? Can you uh, recommend someone who can come in and review our marketing or review our tech. And, and so what most people do is they go out and they tap their network and they find somebody. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something more comprehensive. So what I did is I went to the University of Washington and said, will you partner with me? What I'd like to do is understand of all of the resources that could help an entrepreneur, um, can we make it visible who the best resources are? And let's do it this way. Every VC firm or investment firm has people they rely on in all these different areas, experts that they call in to help their companies or support their companies when they need help, you know, from VCs to PE firms, right? Let's, they all have their own and they, they were hoarding it. And so I, my promise was if you share that, um, then I'll share back with you in this report what other VCs, um, PE firms, angel networks, you know, are who they're relying on. And that started this innovation ecosystem report for Greater Seattle. And we just published the sixth version of that. And it's really the most comprehensive guide to who's who in the uh, tech and life sciences community uh, that can help. Um, entrep help entrepreneurs be successful. 
And so how did you, um, like who's involved with uh, the interview process? Like so who gets to answer the, who gets to answer those questions? Just VCs and angel investors? And uh, started out with just VCs and, and angel investors and PE firms. And, uh, um, and with, uh, you know, University of Washington now foster school students um, uh, who I, you know, I, I basically guide them. And this year with Emmer Dooley was just a fantastic um, uh, experience and they get a ton out of it. They get to know who's who in, in the whole community. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, in terms of interviewing, it's expanded. It expanded beyond um, you know, the VC and the investment community to now CEOs, right? Yeah. So who do they I'm do? sure they, they can give the best feedback for sure. And so what is the framework for evaluating, you know, the innovation economy? Ah, so there's two reports. One is the best of the Northwest. This is a 65 page report on investors, family offices, you know, angel network VCs, uh, lawyers, accountants, et cetera, service providers, um, fuel talent is in there uh, proudly. Uh, yeah. I don't know if we've made it all six years. Uh, maybe. I think you have. You've made it all oh, six good. years. Uh, well, that makes me happy. Uh, so that's one report, and I explained how we do that. And then we created a, a framework for looking at the innovation economy. And again, this is this is totally a, uh, a give back thing that, that I was interested in. How do you build a um, high quality innovation economy that provides great jobs, you know, creates growth, um, uh, commercializes innovation that you know, can improve the world and, and all of that. So there, there's really four circles in there. We created a model, one is innovation. Um, What's your innovation ecosystem look like? How much money are you um, getting into uh, the system through federal grants and, um, and, and other investments in innovation? How many patents are you uh, producing as part of that? Um, so uh, that's one, the startup community. So how many companies are getting started up? How much funding's going into it? Uh, are they getting from startup to scale up? Are we actually creating jobs sustainably? Or are we just churning? Um, and then how do we compete regionally against other states, other regions? And then how do we compete globally? So we look at external reports where people have spent a ton of time in each area and we aggregate those reports. So we're not doing independent research very much except for validation. And we're, we're um, tapping those each year to understand you know, where we are. So last year, for instance, we were um, still fairly weak in, in the startup ecosystem, for instance. We weren't getting mm -hmm. enough money into. Well, yeah, I was about to say what area, probably just the funding part. We need, we definitely, I mean, I think that's part. been a glaring, glaring, glaring thing for many years. Many years. And yeah. so how do we compare to other cities? And are you going to roll this out to other cities or is this a Seattle thing? So far, it's a Seattle thing, but it gets wide, wide uh, distribution and, you know, from yeah. VCs in Silicon Valley and blah, blah, blah. And all over. And so what are our greatest strengths? And like, where are we weak? Where can we improve? Yeah, so the, the greatest, you know, so we're really strong. We're strong in all four areas. We're really strong in 
the innovation side. We're yeah, of course. We get a ton of money. We have, if you think of life sciences, we actually have the ability to grow that even more. Um, and then tech, you know, we 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 rank uh, uh, four overall in terms of funding and four overall of all states in terms of patents granted. Um, so we're really strong there. Startup, I would say we've just gotten stronger. Biggest weakness in that area is really seed investment. It's it's, mm. it's a lack of angel investments in early stage. So we grew even during um, uh, COVID. Uh, the amount of capital that went into tech grew significantly. The tech mm -hmm. sector did well, even though all these other. Oh yeah, we've been like we've never been this slammed. Interesting. So super interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then I'd say the area that we're now to look out for. So we went from kind of a an adolescent to maturity, right? As a overall in our innovation economy. With mm. maturity, you have the risk uh, of what uh, what has happened to Silicon Valley happening to us, which means we're you know, getting too expensive. It's not attracting uh, talent. It's not as affordable. It's not as, I wouldn't say we're not attracting talent. We are attracting talent. So what's next for you? What's this next chapter going to look like? Yeah, so so I, I my father's uh, uh, and mother are role models. They, my dad still works at 92. Oh my goodness. 40 hour weeks, 40 hour weeks. Uh, he's dean of a Pace, uh, Pace Law School and in Westchester. My mom was a 40 in psychoanalyst, just stopped taking patients two years ago. Um, so I, I plan on working. I get a lot of uh, positive from work. So there is a next book. It's, it's tentatively called Orchestrate. And it's, it is um, taking this process to help leaders scale up of uh, road mapping, um, instrumenting, uh, orchestrating and, and uh, navigating along the way, and then elevating everything, the processes, wow. the people. So that's fun. And it's just based on uh, what we've been doing. It's kind of like uh, uh, what we did with Cotter. Um, I can't wait to read it. We're, we're trying to get a second mastermind group, um, but it's not easy because there aren't that many companies that's scaling up. Um, there's a lot of startups, but you have to be passionate. And what about it, as far as I innovate in the company? Well, we spun out one company already, which is uh, OKR Advisors, because there was such a hype around um, objectives and key results. And um, we're very much thinking about how do we disrupt management consulting by taking this orchestrate model and seeing if we can automate the way so you don't actually need an outside consultant. You could literally build this system for yourself and then populate it with information um, that helps you consistently grow your business and look at the right things and have that up to date. Interesting. How are you balancing all of this? I mean, you're probably we're probably going to be like your dad, like 92 and still working. But yeah. um, how do you balance, you know, success in your personal? And professional life do you have like systems and processes or do you just take that kind of pause like you were talking about to plan it's mostly planning and then if i could advise 
if I could have advised myself a number of years ago, I would have said, go out on your own sooner. Because as soon as you go out on your own, you're your own timekeeper. And when you're working for somebody else, they're your timekeeper. And so I feel very much freed up to work whenever I want to work. Um, And so it can be weekends or whatever. And then I can, you know, figure out what time's family time, what time is, you know, recreation time. And I've gotten really into golf, which is sounds like I'm gotten old and, you know, I was a tennis player and a soccer player in college and, and now I'm playing golf and I always thought golf isn't really a sport, but boy, it's, it's quite fun. Um, well, you could walk the course. That's that counts. <laughs> exactly. Get at least get your steps in at least. And so is this for you as, is there a time in your career or in your life where you have felt the most successful and how would you define success? That is a great question. Um, because I think about it in terms of my kids and I tell them success is not about money, right? Success in the personally is enough money to live the life you want to live, but don't measure yourself by the money you make. Success is you living your life, whatever you decide fills you up, makes you happy. And for me, I can only speak for me, it's contributing back to improving the world. Um, And And then you must feel successful because you're doing it. So now it's the happiest point in my time because it is my own. It, it, yeah. It's my own. But yeah, hey, somebody awesome. decided that that uh, they wanted to really, you know, be a ski instructor. I would say, and it made them happy, and they could have a family if that's what they wanted. Fantastic. I totally love that philosophy, and um, tell my kids the same thing. So, what's your ultimate fuel? I'm guessing that I know the answer because you've kind of been. There's been themes throughout this conversation, but what's your like? What fuels you? Uh. Progressive leaders, that's number one, progressive leaders and figuring out a really great and productive way to support them and scale up something that will be a benefit to them. Um, and those two together are magic for me. So I have think time and I have you know, time to work uh, with leaders actively and that combination is just magic. Yeah. Awesome. For those people who haven't yet read the report, where can they find it? Uh, It's on our website under resources. um, And uh, you'll see both reports. And then you'll see a a little bit of the history of our innovation uh, economy uh, as well. www.iinnovatenetwork.com. Two I's, two N's. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. (music) We'll be right back.